Hello, my name is Father Edward Looney, and you're listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary, a podcast that I hope will either be the beginning or the deepening of your Marian devotion. Today, we continue with the sequence of interviews based on my book, How They Love Mary, which you can acquire from Sophia Institute Press. One of the things about How They Love Mary, the book, I wanted to make it a bit autobiographical in the sense that we're following saints that have really impacted my life or other holy men and women whose writings and life stories I encountered. Well, I am an alum of Conception Seminary College, which is located at Conception Abbey in Conception, Missouri. And while I was there, I became familiar with a priest monk named Father Lucas Etlin, who had a cause for sainthood. There was another monk there that really made me aware of Father Lucas, and as I was writing How They Love Mary, I wanted to give a shout-out to my alma mater of Conception Seminary College. And I wondered, well, did Father Lucas have a Marian devotion? And sure enough, it was quite profound. You can read about his Marian devotion in my book, How They Love Mary, and today I'm happy to be speaking with Father Pacomius, a monk of Conception Abbey, who also is an artist and iconographer. Father Lucas was also known for his artistry work. And he is going to share about the life of Father Lucas. He's going to explain a little bit about the monastic life for us and help us to understand the significance of this monk of Conception Abbey. Father Pacomius also serves as the vice rector of Conception Seminary College. Well, thank you for joining me, Father Pacomius, today on How They Love Mary. Uh, it's my pleasure, and, and always in, in the service of Our Lady, um, most happy to do that. And you are a monk of Conception Abbey, as I mentioned here in the intro, and if listeners want to learn more about Conception Abbey, they can go back and they can listen to episode number 32 when I spoke with Brother Maximilian. And actually, it's Brother Maximilian who inspired my own knowledge and familiarity with Father Lucas, who we're going to talk about today. And Father Lucas was a monk of Conception Abbey, and he served at the Sisters in Clyde, Missouri, right down the road from Conception Abbey. But I think before we talk about Father Lucas, it'd be good for us maybe just to look at vocabulary, because a lot of times people use vocabulary in the church wrong at times. And so lots of people will, will refer to friars, for example, as monks. But there's a difference between a friar and a monk. So what is the monastic life? Uh, yeah, that's a good distinction. Um, yeah, the kind of the, the technical difference is um, partly historical. So uh, the development of religious life in the church uh, begins with what we find in the New Testament with the order of virgins and the order of widows. And Paul talks about this. And so we know that there were people who are living a, a kind of common life of prayer and what we would now call the evangelical councils that Jesus gives, you know, um, to uh, to remain uh, in chaste celibacy for the kingdom, uh, to leave everything and follow after Christ, that's obedience, you know, basically to deny your own self-will um, in order to be humbled and, 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 uh, and, you know, I must decrease, he must increase. And, uh, and then also poverty and to, to live uh, simply in that way. Um, but after the development of the, these uh, virgins and, and, and widows, and then what we can glimpse from the lives of the apostles, uh, people are, are generally living in kind of society. We might have people who are holy people who aren't necessarily priests and uh, in just before uh, the legalization of uh, Christianity in the early fourth century in the Roman Empire, we start to see people who, you know, Christianity is becoming more popular. More people are becoming Christian as on the cusp of being uh, legalized. And with that, of course, we have kind of a lukewarmness that sets in. And there are certain individuals who feel that, 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 that call to a more heroic kind of holiness and witness in the church. And, uh, and men and women started to leave 
the cities and going through the Egyptian desert and the Syrian desert and the desert of Asia Minor and even in Europe in the wildernesses of Ireland and what is what is now France and to to really spatially leave and completely devote themselves to a life of prayer and simple work and often within a short amount of time uh, kind of community of life in, in a sort of a hierarchical way. And so the life of monasticism is to live the gospel generally according to some kind of rule or a tradition. How, how are we going to do that together? How do we order our life? And really to pray on behalf of the world. Um, a monastery is not shutting out the world in its cloister. A monastery is like a greenhouse that is super concentrated so that it can grow fruits that then go back out to the world. And so the primary work of monks, although we might, in our case, we run a seminary for uh, diocesan priests, the Ed Looney, Father Ed Looney, priest of, of the Most High God, is one of our illustrious alumni from Conception Seminary College. And we might do other things to sustain ourselves so we don't have to uh, rely on other people. So we have a greeting card company, the Printery House. We often also offer uh, retreats and we do a little mission work. We, we staff some of the parishes around us and that's been to a greater or lesser st extent at different times. But our primary work is to witness to the resurrection in our very life together in this little part of the world and to pray on behalf of the world and for the conversion of sinners and the suffering souls in purgatory. As this develops and people start to move back into cities in Europe as that develops, um, well, now people are maybe becoming less Christian. And so there becomes a need to re-evangelize people who have moved into the cities. And because maybe monasteries have become very efficient and they, uh, they develop, you know, particular breeds of sheep that, have great wool and they become kind of wealthy and they accrue a lot of uh, fancy churches and furnishings of the churches and all this and maybe they become lax people say we want to see the proof in the pudding are you going to follow christ as he did and so that's when we have in the high middle ages around the end of the 12th century into the 13th century the development of mendicant orders who are very similar maybe in, in their ordering and their community life to, to monks and nuns, but they move around. They don't stay in one place. They, they, they are peripatetic, and, they, and also they beg. They don't have some way of raising money for themselves in order to witness to evangelical poverty that they have voluntarily given up and identify with poor people in the cities. They also beg, and so they are called friars, or, you know, like little brothers, where monk comes from the word uh, alone, which was originally monos, which was a, a kind of a, a snide remark to these monks by the pagans. They thought that we were misanthropic, but it's not nothing of the kind. And, and in true punk rock fashion, the, the, the first monk said, yes, we are monos, but that also can mean whole or entire. So we're not looking to be married. We are whole and complete because of our unity with God that makes us more charitable to those who will come and visit us and seek our advice in living a holy life. So that's the difference between monks and friars. And the same is true probably for friars as it is for monks, is that in religion, these consecrated <laughs> religious take a new name. So if I, Father Ed Looney, was going to join a monastery, I could be Father Damien or Father Joseph or someone, some saint that I take as my patron. What's the process? Well, certainly, you'd be, oh. certainly you'd be Father Mary Joseph, at least, Father, <laughs> Father Ed, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> you, somehow there would be a Mary in there. There's a, a, a movie that just uh, aired in theaters for a day about St. Anthony Mary Claret. So a lot of people take Mary as their second name. Uh, so maybe that would have been the possibility. But what's this process like? How do you pick a name? And then it has to get approved, I think. And your name is Pacomius. So why did you choose or why <laughs> was Pacomius given to you? And who is St. Pacomius? Okay, yeah. Uh Believe it or not, I get asked this a lot. In fact, I was asked this. Uh, we, we just uh, began orientation for our new seminarians 
this week and, and one of our seminarians said, well, how does that process happen? So this, this is a very frequent question. And if you are a Pacomius, let me tell you, uh, you must be an evangelist about uh, religious names because, uh, you know, my mother did not name me Pacomius. That's, that's for sure. Uh, she, <laughs> she was much, much more charitable than that. Um, so the first thing to say is that it is a, a, a tradition in the church that goes back a long time. And it's uh, maybe as early as uh, the ninth century, at least. And the uh, first thing we should say is that the saint picks you, that we really believe that there's a, a kind of a, a spiritual bond with your new patron um, that is involved here. And part of the reason for taking a name is that religious life is a, is a deepening of your baptismal vows, and at your vows you're given a name. And uh, But we hear in Scripture in the book of Revelation that there's a, a special name each of us will have in heaven. So there's this kind of idea that in monastic life is the angelic life, like we're anticipating the life of heaven. That's why we don't get married. Um, and so I'm already living my heavenly life, so I need a new start. I need a deepening of, of my baptismal vows. And so off with the old man, on with the new man. That's why I wear a distinctive dress, a habit. Um, in some traditions, they still have a tonsure. And this is one more sign that I'm a consecrated person. And so in our community, first of all, uh, if no one has your name, you would be able to ask the abbot, who's the head of the monastery, if you could keep it. And my baptismal name was Matthew, and actually at the time nobody had that name. But you know, I'm 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 a little too much of a of a, a adventurous type, I guess. I, I'm I'm an artist, and so it's like it's got to be it's got to be a little bit more provocative than that. So I <laughs> I, I was like, I know I can't do that vanilla kind of choice. Uh, so if if someone does have your name, or you're free to, then you would propose names and. Uh, you make a list of three names in order of which you would like to receive them. And you give reasons why you think you should receive that name. And then you present them to the abbot. And we, we take names when we make our, our temporary vows, our first vows. And he reads off this. He prays with this. He makes also practical dis distinctions. I was told uh, one of the monasteries in our congregation they run a, a boys' military school. Seems kind of weird, but they but they do. And uh, they have a tradition there that you can't have a name like Pacomius because the students would would just make fun of it and make all kinds of weird nicknames, and so you have to have a very white bread kind of name at that <laughs> monastery. But at conception, we are we are of old stock, and so we, we can bear the weight of one of these impressive uh, names. Uh, now, the abbot is free to choose off of that list. He does not need to choose one of your picks. Um, and in an act of obedience, you would have to accept that. Um, and I know the case, you know, our, our recent abbots are pretty good about that. They don't make you suffer being like Brother Vivian or something like that. They will allow you to have one of your choices. But but in the, in the 1940s, 1950s, my older converse will talk about how you know, you might be asking for Gregory, but in a day when you had many novices, uh, somebody probably got that name ahead of you. And sometimes the abbot would just say, you're going to be this. Um, so in my case, Comius was actually my first choice. Um, and uh, all of my picks, although I've always been artistically gifted, I didn't choose uh, St. Luke or Lucas, which might be uh might have been a good idea considering our topic today um <laughs> the patron of artists is is, is saint luke um but uh, they were all um monastic founders of some kind uh, some really uh foundational monks in the history of of the church and so the other choices were bruno who was the founder of the carthusians uh, which is the most strict order in the cassian after John Cashin, uh, who was very influential on St. Benedict and his rule, he brought kind of the, uh, the Eastern spirituality of Eastern monasticism from the Egyptian desert to uh, the, the Western Europe. 
And that was very important because a lot of the Celtic monasticism was uh, about doing kind of uh, these uh, kind of mighty deeds that were often perceived as vainglorious. So you were doing it for your own glory, not because it was it was it was bringing you closer to God or making you grow in virtue. And uh, and then Pacomius. Pacomius was my first choice, and probably no most of your your listeners have not heard of Saint Pacomius. Um, but St. Pacomius is considered the father of Cenobitic monasticism. And that is to say, monks who live in community under a rule and an abbot. Um, before that, the first monks, like St. Anthony of the Desert, they were hermits, or they lived kind of in what's called a lavra, where it was sort of like hermits that lived within a stone throw of each other. But they weren't really a community. And St. Pacomius uh, was born to pagan parents uh, in Egypt, it's a Coptic name originally. Pakom uh, means king's falcon. Uh, when I took the name, I didn't know that it could have meant little girl for all I knew, and and I'm glad it means king's falcon. That's that's much more uh, much more noble. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and the IUS is just a, a Latin ending on that. That's most common in English. And uh, he. He was conscripted into the Roman army, so he was forced to be a soldier when he didn't want to be. And they would keep them in prisons overnight. And while they were detained, Christians would come and minister to them to bring them food, to encourage them. And he was so moved by their charity that that sparked his conversion. And at the age of 20, he became a Christian. And not long after, hearing about the reputation of St. Anthony of Egypt, he went to become a hermit, and he studied with another hermit and uh, became a monk. And at some point, after kind of rising to maturity of his own in his monastic life, alone as a solitary, an angel appeared to him dressed as an elder monk in, in the habit of an elder monk and said to him, By this habit, O Pacomius, all flesh will be saved. And he clothed him in the habit, and, and he said, you must take all of these disparate monks who are hermits and put them into a community and you lead over them and give them a rule of life so that they may, may truly live the gospel and not go astray. And so he was the first to do what pretty much all of religious life has been ever since, which is to be in common and to have a specific written rule. It's the first rule in the church written about 150 years before the rule of St. Benedict. And uh, we actually know more about the life of St. Pacomius than we do of St. Benedict, given the place and time in which he lived. And it was written by his own monks, which is unusual in uh, the biographies of the early monks. So we think it's probably more accurate. Um, and, you know, I joined the monastery when I was 20 years old. And I remember being in monastic history here in the seminary just prior to that. And I had actually read the life of St. Pacomius when I was in our St. Anthony of the Desert in high school. But I had never heard of Pacomius, and I was so angry that I had never heard of him. I, I, I had to go and read his, his biography, and I was very edified by that. And that the fact that he was, that was the first rule for monks, and he was kind of an entrepreneur, he was a creative person, and I was like, and he had kind of this unusual name. I, I must be honest, you know, it wasn't vanilla. I thought, well, this is this is this is the patron for me. And and right off the bat, when I would talk to my novice master about patrons, I was thinking of this was the one he he took the most shine to, and it remained the consistent one that I thought about in that period of the sermon over my novitiate year. Um, and so uh, so that's that that's uh, the abbot did kind of raise an eyebrow that I wanted to be Pacovius. Uh, but ultimately, he, he he thought it would be a good fit for me. That's such an interesting story. I actually I don't think in two years I ever heard that story while I studied at uh, Conception Seminary College. Now the seminary is at the grounds of the abbey, so the monks live in the monastery, and then there's actually a brand new seminary building that you had a capital campaign, which I gladly and happily donated to, and so. How Bless did the, you. Bless you. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> and I'll continue to support Conception Abbey until my dying breath, so don't worry. Uh, how did the monks become involved in the priestly formation of seminarians for the diocesan priesthood? 
Yes, there's another uh, kind of kind of strange thing I think, and, and in fact, even our a lot of our local uh, Catholic population, I think they they seem to believe that our seminary is actually for candidates for the monastery, and, and they can't quite figure out how we have all these seminarians, and they don't all pan out joining, you know, going through with making vows in the monastery. But but yeah, it is for uh, forming parish priests, and and so that is a little different. Um, Actually, it's kind of a kind of a happy accident in some ways because you recall that the seminary system grows out of the Council of Trent in the Counter Reformation reforms, and one of the great you know architects of that is Saint Charles Borromeo, uh, the the Archbishop of Milan, and he actually went to our mother house of Engelberg in Switzerland, and they ran a gymnasium school for boys, and he said to the monks of Engelberg, he said you should start up this this idea I have of forming diocesan priests. Will you do this? And, you know, being very polite Swiss people, they never want to get in a fight. They want to stay out of that. They just said, oh, yes, your eminence, we, we, it's a very good idea. We'll give us some consideration. Now you have a sip to back over the Alps. <laughs> and uh, and they didn't start up a, a seminary, unfortunately. But both of their their daughter houses in America of Conception Abbey and Mount Angel in Oregon uh, have seminaries. Um, so 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 I feel like that seed of the seedbed, which is a seminary, that's what that word means, uh, really comes from Charles Borromeo himself. Um, but a more uh, I guess uh, precise answer of how we got into that when we came here. Uh, like most monasteries, we like to be as, as self-sufficient as we can be. And we, as one of our kind of uh, things that we had along with, with, with a, a farm and, uh, you know, taking care of the missions around here and actually missions to, uh, to uh, American Indians in the Dakotas, we uh, decided to start a junior college. And within the junior college, we also said, well, we should probably form our own monks for the priesthood, those who are going on for holy orders. Not all the monks get ordained. Some some remain uh, in the lay state, and they have the title of brother. But, uh, but most of us get ordained priests. And so we were doing our own formation for that. And then, you know, the, the local bishop, he said, well, you know, if, you, if you're doing that for your own guys, would you do that for my guys? And so he started sending uh, his candidates for uh, priesthood, to our seminary, uh, to our college. So we had people who were just getting, um, you know, a college degree here or some college credit. And then some also with our own monks who were studying for the priesthood. And then that kind of grew and grew and more dioceses wanted to be a part of that. And then around the 1940s, at 30s and 40s, uh, our abbot Stephen decided you know, we're going to switch completely and we're actually going to choose to be a seminary hard and fast. We're going to have high school, college, and theology, and it's going to specifically be a theology. And then we tried to uh, expand our reach and uh, welcome more uh, dioceses into that. At this time, we're, we're only a college. We moved our high school up to our daughter house at uh, Mount Michael in, in Nebraska, it's no longer a, a high school seminary. It's a school for boys. And then uh, in the 70s, we closed our theology school, but we still have the college, which uh, its main focus is is philosophy. And then they will go on to uh, approximately four years of theology emphasis in graduate seminaries somewhere else. But it is often kind of this funny thing, like, well, why monks who, generally speaking, are not parish priests, why do you have them training these men? And I think especially at the college level, there's good reason to have Benedictine monks do that. Uh, Benedictine spirituality is what I might call very humane. Uh, like most of the monastic literature, it understands the human person very well, our desires and our weaknesses, and tries to say, how do we come to understand ourselves better so that we can overcome these demons that afflict us, uh, avoid temptation, um, and become strong 
so that we can be a benefit for others in the church. And I think that kind of under, understanding, that self-understanding and overcoming uh, these things to grow in holiness are a good foundation for our men. The, the church will say that one of the primary focuses of college is human formation and is really uh, developing the skill of self-reflection, knowing how you come off to other people and very much knowing yourself through and through. And then from that, with grace building on nature, being able to, to build a regular prayer life, and monks are nothing if not regular. We pray at the same time every day. The bells start ringing. We all drop what we're doing. We go to that. And so helping our men develop a structure of life and a routine and then be able to internalize that for themselves. So when they go home in the summer and when they eventually go and live in a parish, they know what it means and, and how well it goes when they develop that routine for themselves. And I think there's a benefit too, for, for monks running a place like this, because um, uh, liturgy uh, is really one of the hallmarks of Benedict's monasticism. Um, the fact that we do pray in common and we try to do it beautifully and reverently, and our primary uh, kind of spirituality outside of the sung liturgy is Lexio Divina, that is praying with scripture. We want uh, holy pastors who really uh, are nourished by the Word of God, and their preaching comes out of their own experience of the living Word, um, usually before the Blessed Sacrament. That's the best way to do it. Um, but Word and Sacrament so that they can give that away to other people. And lastly, I think uh, one of the, you know, we, we predate those modern orders like the Franciscans and the Dominicans who arose in the 12th century, the 13th century, and they're the ones who developed poverty, chastity, and obedience as the vows, the evangelical councils. Well, St. Benedict, in his rule, he's actually the first to formulate vows, to, to have a written vow document. And his, his uh, vows, as he enumerates them, are a little different. Now, they include poverty and chastity, or we might say community of goods and celibate chastity. But he also adds um, stability. And the vow of stability means that I make vows to Conception Abbey and Conception Abbey alone, and I will never leave this monastery. The monastery I enter, I will die in. Most modern religious, they join a province, and they move around in a geographical area all over the place. But I'm always a monk in Conception Abbey. And that stability means something for, for a college seminary. It means that no matter what position I have in the seminary, there's not a lot of place to go, <laughs> which is to say there's not a whole lot of ambition that I need to step on the toes to climb a ladder here. And I can, I'm more freed up to be more collaborative with my confreres and the other priests and lay faculty are going to come work with me. I know that I'm always going to be here no matter what. And so I'm, I'm kind of freed of sort of an ambition that could get in the way of me really putting the man, the men who are, who are assigned to me first and foremost in their formation. And also stability means that, we're a place that you, Father Ed Looney, who's our alumnus, will come back to, and there will be monks that, that were your spiritual director and your teacher and your formator that you will come back and be able to visit with, to go on retreat with, to go and pray with. We're going to be here. It feels like home to you. Whereas if you go to a diocesan seminary, no, no shade thrown to them, uh, you know, they roll over in, in their, their faculty and staff quite a bit. And to go back to that doesn't seem quite as important. Whereas when you come back to a monastery, it's much more like coming home. And I think for Dostin priests who, who have to have a great level of detachment, moving from parish to parish and, and working on a project that they, they put their, their blood, sweat and tears and many prayers in, and then have to go somewhere else and do it all over again, to come back and do a retreat or just make a visit at a monastery like ours um, really becomes a great support to them. Uh, in their priesthood. I always look forward to going back to Conception, and I hope to make it there sometime this next year to see the new building and everything that you built, and uh, just to spend some time there and pray as well. So uh, I'm grateful for my years of formation at Conception Seminary, and one of the things that happened while I was there 
you do befriend the monks. And so there's a younger monk, Brother Maximilian, and Brother Maximilian gave me a prayer card one day. He said, here's a prayer card for one of the monks, and he had a cause for sainthood. It didn't go anywhere, but here's a prayer. I thought you might like it. I looked at the prayer, and it referenced the Blessed Mother. And it was interesting because as I was a student at Conception, I actually would pray that prayer almost every day, asking this priest that I knew nothing about to pray for me that I might do well in my studies here at Conception Abbey or whatever. So uh, his name was Father Lucas Etlin, and he did have a cause for sainthood. And I'm wondering... How did that cause begin? And of course, he's not a saint. He's not a blessed. I don't think it really took. So a lot of times for a sainthood cause, there has to be kind of an outward movement of the people wanting this. And I think maybe the church looked at it and said, there isn't that swell of devotion around this person. But how did he become uh, regarded for his holiness so much so that there's a prayer for his beatification? Well, Father Lucas... um uh is one of one of our early monks uh he he came from switzerland and he uh was uh, kind of brought up in the monastery by our founding abbot abbot Frohn conrad uh at the the latter quarter of the uh 19th century and he unfortunately was killed uh in a car wreck uh in the early 20th century uh Father Lucas was reputed for his his great personal holiness, um, but I think what distinguished him uh, as someone of note was his heroic charity in raising uh, raising money for uh, convents and monasteries and seminarians in Europe during the First World War, um, and one of the reasons why uh, there were monks of my community who said as late as the 1990s, they would go various places in Europe and say that they were from Conception Abbey speaking to a, a diocesan priest there. And he would say, I am a priest today because of Father Lucas Atlin. Um, he, through the Benedictine Sisters of Perpetual Adoration in Clyde, Missouri, which is only uh, two miles away from us, uh, he was chaplain to them and very foundational in in kind of their observance and remaining contemplative and and designing their beautiful uh, chapel for them. He was a, an artist and an architect, and he was the head painter who did the the many beautiful Bornese murals in our basilica and directed um, the work over at the chapel at Clyde. And uh, he, uh, through their publication, Tabernacle and Purgatory, was able to raise money uh, in the U.S. to help these struggling monasteries in, in, in wartime and to make sure that there would be uh, seminarians in the wartime who could pay for their studies and ultimately be ordained priests. And in gratitude for the work that he did, many people uh, in those monasteries or, or out of gratitude sent relics back to Clyde and Clyde has a, a, a very large relic chapel that you can still go to today and venerate the relics there. Um, and, uh, and and there were certain uh, um, things that, that uh, Father Lucas was granted through the Holy See in order to, uh, to thank people for their generosity in this endeavor. So, for example, he was given uh, uh, 2,000 rosaries that he was able to bless with the indulgence of the uh, Jerusalem pilgrimage on every bead, which was like a, a total remission of temporal punishment, uh, as if going to make a pilgrimage to to the Holy Land on every single bead. Uh, so it was quite impressive. And I actually was someone put on the giveaway table in the monastery one of these rosaries, and I quickly scooped it up. I couldn't believe that there was still a, a Father Lucas rosary available. But there were certain certain kind of miraculous things that happened. Um, around things like this that kind of show his uh, kind of uh, a particular uh, holiness. So they had thought that they had given away all of these 2,000 rosaries, and then uh, they went to check once again, and they found a whole cache of extra ones, for example. Um, he was uh, very devoted to the Eucharist, and the sisters across the way were, were uh, adoration sisters, along with being Benedictines. 
and he was instrumental in in uh, making sure that 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 remained a contemplative house, and that uh, his own devotion to the Eucharist was was quite strong, and he was kind of part of his cause for sainthood was was. Uh, I think he was being called the Apostle of the Eucharist. I think that's maybe what that prayer card might have said, too. Um, and he was uh, very devoted uh, to to Our Lady, uh, especially the Sorrowful Mother and Christ, uh, uh, Suffering uh, Christ. He had a crucifix that we now have in our chapter room that he would spend uh, a, a long period of um, uh uh, contemplating, and it's what's unique about it is it's not a Christ who has died, but a Christ who's still in agony. And I think he spent a great time um, uh, in those days, you know, doing what we would call the discipline. So he would, you know, he would actually strike himself and uh, and try to unite his suffering to the cross of Christ for the conversion of sinners and the poor souls in purgatory. And he really took that very seriously as an important thing to do. Um, so these are some of the ideas of, of, of why he came to prominence and why certain people, um, he was known for his personal holiness. He, he uh, had heroic charity in trying to make sure that uh, monasteries and parishes in the old world would still, uh, would still flourish in a time of, of, of great strife uh, in Europe and, uh, and uh, became uh, well-known for, for, doing, for doing that. I'm sure maybe Conception Abbey or maybe even the nuns in Clyde, they probably wished he would have become a saint because there would have been some sort of notoriety, I guess you could say, attached to that. People might come there. They might pray at the tomb of a saint. It would have been a very special thing if it maybe would have proceeded, but that wasn't in the will or the plan of God. But yet his memory is kept alive. For whatever reason, I found him. You found a set of rosary beads. So I know that the, in the monastery, there's this reading from the necrology every day. So you talk about monks who died and you remember them and you pray for them. So outside of that, do you think there's any living memory or any, do, do people still make reference to this Father Lucas? Uh, well, yes, I, I, I did just today. And, and partly that's, that's, that's in um, the work that he did in our, in our, Abbey Basilica, the, the church that, 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 that we have, because he was uh, the head painter in making the frescoes of the life cycle of the Blessed Virgin Mary in our basilica. And all of those were uh, copies from uh, other works that were in guidebooks or in other European monasteries. Uh, the mural style that we have is called Borinese art, and it comes from a 19th century uh, German monastery that wanted to revive Christian art um, and to uh, kind of steer it away from sort of Baroque excess or kind of 19th century sentimentality and have a kind of a, a more like medieval and early Renaissance art with a little bit more gravitas. And uh, it's very influenced by Egyptian art, a lot of profiles and the groupings are meant to, uh, to model Gregorian chant, the kind of square notes and how they're they're paired in threes and slowly descending and ascending uh, movements of music, so that when we're not in the basilica, the the artwork still praises God. And so we have the life cycle of the Blessed Virgin Mary in about twenty four uh, murals on the Triforium, along with uh, a fully painted ceiling of. A starry night with angels because our mother house was Engelberg, Angel Mountain in Switzerland. But in the apse of the Abbey Basilica, there is a depiction of the Immaculate Conception according to the canons that were laid down uh, in the uh, 16th century. And uh, that's an original work by Saint Lu by uh, Father Lucas, um, as opposed to all the other ones that were copies. This was his original composition in the Borinese style. Hmm. And one of the things that he did, uh, there are two things that are that are that are important about this. One is, uh, it's the depiction that 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 is taken from uh, uh, Saint Bernadette Subaru, 
from her depiction at Lourdes, how she describes Our Lady dressed with a white, a long white mantle veil, uh, her uh, a light blue uh, cincture around her waist, and uh, and in the you know she's she's arrayed in the sun, she's standing on the moon, she's crushing the head of the serpent. Um, she has twelve stars around her head, so it's a combination of uh, the the imagery of Eve and then the new Eve. Mary in and the apocalyptic woman in Revelation 12, but on the slipper that is crushing the head of the serpent, you can't see it from where we are on the floor of the church, but if you get close enough, you'll see written in Latin along the the the, the stitching of the of the slipper. It says, "Ora pro me l," which is, "Pray for me, Lucas." Oh wow! And so his great devotion to Our Lady that no one would see, but that he wanted her to see. Um, trusted in her as, as his mother and as, and as the one who would, would shield him uh, with her mantle. The other thing was that it's reputed that as he was up on the scaffolding painting uh, this depiction of the Immaculate Virgin, that he actually fell off it. And uh, the other monks who were in there painting with him, they, they rushed to him, and expected him to have, you know, broken many bones or maybe even died. He simply got up unscathed. Like he fell out a pillow of angels or <laughs> the blessed yes. mother yes. caught him or something. Yeah. Wow. Yes. And so it should be said, I mean, uh, our church is, is, is several stories high that he fell off of a scaffold uh, and, and was completely unscathed. Wow. Uh, and, and so, so protected by our lady, and, and her choir of angels. Um, so again, we, we hear all these many of the stories about, about him in that way too. Father Lucas was the chaplain of the nuns in Clyde, and I'm sure maybe if I would talk to some sisters at Clyde, they might have stories that have been handed down about him, just as you've handed down stories about Father Lucas today. Is there still a monk that's the chaplain for the sisters in Clyde? What's the relationship between Conception Abbey and their monastery? And this is something that's not foreign, this idea kind of of a double monastery. Francis and St. Clair had a double monastery. Benedict and Scholastica had that. So now you have the male religious and the female religious, and they're in close proximity. And I would assume it's so that the monks can serve the spiritual needs of the sisters. Uh, yes, that's that's exactly right. And, um, you know, I, it, it's kind of a sad thing, and it, it, it's... Uh, you know, the uh, middle to late part of the 20th century was was in sometimes uh, maybe a very fraught time in the church's history. We think of like our own time must be really terrible, but um, there were a lot of changes that happened in religious life uh, after the Second Vatican Council, and I think particularly for women religious. And it's unfortunate to say, but as I understand it, most... Uh, Benedictine monasteries have, have a corresponding uh, women's monastery of Benedictine sisters. And uh, in most cases these days, uh, they often don't have a very good relationship. But I am, I am happy to say that we, we have a, a quite close and, and very, uh, and very uh, beautiful relationship with our sisters across from us in the cornfields. Uh, here in, in Northwest Missouri with the, the Benedictine Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. And uh, we don't actually have uh, a permanent chaplain with them, but we send over a monk every day to uh, the main house, and then they also have sort of their retirement center, um, and we send a, a monk down there to say Mass uh, as well at a different time. And so we actually, so you do a rotation. Everybody get everybody takes their turn uh, for a week and goes over there. And the sisters are, are very grateful that we do that. There are also places where maybe there is a, a female monastery, but there aren't. There isn't a corresponding male monastery, and often they have to rely on uh, whatever priest is available. And maybe they don't even get mass every day. Uh, I often, in the past, had filled in for. The missionary Benedictine sisters up in uh, Norfolk, Nebraska, and we provide a full-time chaplain who lives there for them. And but they are the only house of their congregation in the whole world 
uh, a, Benedict, a missionary Benedictine sisters who has a Benedictine uh, chaplain. Most of the time, it's like maybe the local parish priest or they have another religious order who, who comes by. So I think it means a lot to them that they have a Benedictine chaplain going over, and partly because um, of our spirituality and our, and our, and our kind of a, a common heritage, and we can talk about, you know, things in the rule that are said or or, or or what's particular to kind of our charism, and I think they really appreciate that. Um, the sisters don't do it now, but when we, when we got started out, um, these sisters, while being primarily contemplative, they did do some teaching for a while to the local children, and they stopped that to, to maintain their contemplative life. And also, um, they used to do a lot of things like, uh, they didn't cook for us, but they used to do our laundry. Um, every now and then one of the sisters will kind of joke with me. He says, you know, I, you know, I, I might, in fact, one time I, I, I was over there as this was many years ago. And, uh, and the sisters, she said, said, well, you know, I, 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 I do your laundry, you know, if you wanted me to Father Comius. And then, uh, it was around Christmas time and we were going to have this big snowstorm. So they actually picked me up and took me over there and I stayed over and got snowed in with them. And, uh, I was over there, quite a few days because we're very rural where we are and the roads can be bad if they don't really get cleared. And there was a lot of ice and snow and many inches. And we're not like you in the great white Nord up there in, 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 in Wisconsin, you know, you know how to deal with that. We, we, we're, we're less efficient about those kinds of things. <laughs> and, uh, and so, so uh, I said to this same sister who had just clipped it, this to me recently, uh, I said, you know, if I stay here much longer, you may get your wish to do my laundry. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> So yeah, but we have a we have a good relationship, and and we um, for every feast of Saint Scholastica, our community goes over to their monastery, and we chant vespers with them, evening prayer with them, and then we have a meal with them. Uh, most of our meals here at the at, at the Abbey are silent with reading, but that would be a speaking meal with them, and then and and it's kind of in echo of the last meeting of Saint Benedict and Saint Scholastica. It's kind of a famous story. Uh, and then, um, and then every Easter Monday, they come over and they pray vespers with us, and then we have a dinner with them. So, uh, that, uh, yeah, as, again, as I said, uh, that's rather unusual these days, unfortunately. Um, but we have a, a very good relationship with them. I have a great fondness for Conception. Clyde is a very beautiful place, beautiful church. They have the relics, as you mentioned earlier. And people can go to the monastery. People could actually choose to go on retreat there, at least to your monastery of Conception Abbey. There's a retreat center. People can go to the Abbey Basilica. They can attend Mass there. They can see these murals that Father Lucas helped paint and install in the Basilica. So if people want to know more about Conception Abbey, where should they go online? Well, we have our own website, and it has uh, different pages for uh, any particular thing that you may be interested in. Um, it's www.conceptionabbey, all one word. And, you know, people have different ways of spelling Abbey. Maybe your your proper name is Abbey, for example, and you might spell it A-B-B-I-E. But we spell Abbey A-B-B-E-Y. At dot uh, org, so www.conceptionabbey.org, and from there you can you can you can read about our seminary, uh, you can see about our our guest center, you can see our horarium, that is, our schedule of uh, chanting the the divine office, uh, our mass times, um, about the printery house, uh, and go to their website for our Christian greeting cards and and and. Uh, and gifts like uh, I'm an iconographer myself. I'm a religious artist myself, like Father Lucas, and uh, they reproduce some of my icons there. If you would be so interested, and uh, anything else that you'd want to find out about our history, uh, we uh, occasionally do live streams of, of major events and uh, liturgies there, and and we also have what's called now the online spiritual journey, and uh, that's a, that's a daily reflections that are based on the, the daily mass readings and different monks. And then we've also started last year, we started having our seminarians uh, take a turn writing reflections for, uh, for every day of the year. 
And uh, so you can get those in your email or you can come and read those. Um, if you're a, a priest who, you know, if you, like I was a pastor for a little bit, uh, just like Father, Father Looney, and, uh, you know, you're preaching maybe every day. And sometimes it helps to have uh, a little fodder for that. So you kind of look around online maybe quickly as you're getting ready in the morning, see what somebody else said about that. And uh, that's a good place, maybe also a resource for priests. All these monks who are spending so many hours in prayer with, with the scriptures, they might have something worthwhile saying uh, that you could kind of very, uh, very benignly uh, crib for yourself and impress your parishioners uh, with your knowledge and reflection on the Holy Scriptures. <laughs> Admittedly, I don't subscribe, but now I'm going to subscribe, not for the homily help, but just for the spiritual edification. I will say this, I did uh, one time, I was preaching a Mass on, it was, I think, Easter Monday, or maybe it was Easter Tuesday, sometime during the octave. I had watched uh, the homily, at least, of Abbot Benedict from Conception Abbey uh, for Easter vigil for the Mass that you had celebrating it. And it was live stream, so I was able to watch an archive version of it or whatever. And there was a, a mass I was preaching on relevant radio that I just basically quoted. I said, you know, there was this wonderful homily that Abbot Benedict preached from Conception Abbey. And he made <laughs> these points, and I think they're worthy of our reflection because it was so profound, uh, essentially what he said, that I wanted to share it with, you know, millions of people potentially through relevant radio. Well, that's wonderful. I'm glad to hear that. Your alma mater is pro is providing you with ongoing priestly formation. That's what we want to hear, Ed. You know, that you never, <laughs> never stop that, and and we're and we're happy to provide that for you as as a very faithful and holy alumnus. I'm grateful for our conversation today, Father Pacomius, and hopefully maybe I'll be able to see you in person sometime this year as I make a visit to my alma mater, Conception Abbey. Thanks so much. Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, God bless all your all your uh, listeners, and everyone is always welcome at Conception Abbey. Hey, thanks so much for listening to today's show and for all the many ways that you support the podcast. If you want to help out the podcast, be sure to check out Sock Religious. I love their socks. I love their shirts. And so go over to Sock Religious, use the link in the show notes, and buy some holy socks or some holy shirts that you can wear to evangelize your family and your friends. If you also want to support the podcast, I invite you to please share the podcast with your friends or on your social media platforms. Rate or review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't mind, please follow me on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. My handle is at FR Edward Looney. You'll see all of the posts, all of the content that I put out each week by following me there. Thanks so much again for listening today. Know that I am entrusting you to the heart of Mary, asking her to pray for you this day and every day. And if you don't mind, say a prayer for me too. Let us remain united in prayer to Jesus through Mary. God bless.